0: Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to speak with Kylie Joy Gray about the Supreme Court case that is almost certainly going to lead to the end of Roe v. Wade. And uh, with it, legal abortion for millions of women who can't afford to travel to a blue state and take off time from work to access reproductive health care. You know, keep in mind, these the people who are writing these laws, um, they know that they're, you know... The women in their lives are going to have access to abortion regardless. They just have to go somewhere else. Um, then we're going to be joined by University of Maine political scientist Amy Freed. We're going to talk about how the right has weaponized distrust of government, some of which is justified, uh, but they've they've really demagogued that uh, for, for their own ideological purposes. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about what progressives can do about it. We have a lot to cover, so I'm I'm not going to do a long intro this week. I just wanted to note some good news because it's been a tough week, and uh, as regular listeners know, I try not to make this show all depressing all the time, and I often fail at that effort, but I try. So you may have heard from the uh, legacy media that Democrats are doomed and everyone hates them. That seems to be a, a popular narrative. But in Georgia this week, they held runoff votes for a bunch of local races, and Democrats flipped seven of them from red to blue at least seven there are a couple of uh, margins that may change and they fended off a bunch of challenges from republican candidates and this came after they flipped 35 local seats in november so that's a net gain of 42 local offices in georgia and um This came this week as uh, Stacey Abrams announced that she's going to try for the governorship again. And what it says is that all of this deep organizing that we've been seeing in Georgia for years, the investment in continual organizing as opposed to just dropping in during elections, appears to be changing the state in interesting, certainly, and potentially really consequential ways. This is the state that... uh, you know, Joe Biden flipped for the first time in in years, in decades, and that gave us a Democratic Senate majority, tiny Democratic Senate majority. In less good news, Harry Enten took a look at the flu shot for CNN, and he found, and this is kind of this is kind of depressing. He found the same partisan split in people getting the jab as we've seen with COVID vaccines. Uh, sorry, not the same split, not the same numbers, but a partisan divide on the flu shot where none had existed previously. It used to be that Republicans and Democrats and independents got flu shots at the same rates. And that is no longer the case. So you have the spillover effect from the very hard to understand, uh, conservative opposition to all kinds of COVID mitigation measures, whether it's masks, social distancing, they don't even social distance, uh, Vaccinations, vaccine mandates, etc., etc. This is a spillover effect from that, and if you want to look at it from a little bit of a higher altitude, it's a spillover effect from the Alex Jones vacation of the Republican Party, which is now not only our pro COVID party but also our pro influenza party. So, and uh, P.S. Epidemiologists are worried about a one-two punch of the flu and COVID. So, I would encourage you to get vaccinated. Um, If you haven't already, don't be like those numpties. And with that, we'll take a quick break and be right back with Kylie Joy Gray, who is uh, rightly pissed off. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I wish I were talking to my next guest, who is, I have to say, one of my all time favorites about something less shitty than this week's uh, oral arguments in an abortion case that is almost certainly going to result in the end of Roe v. Wade and 50 years of legal protections for uh, reproductive health care in this country. But this is where we are in America after decades of liberal neglect of the courts and uh, relentless efforts by the right to reshape them. Uh, Kylie Joy is, is now joining us to talk about this week's uh, debacle at the court. Kylie is a veteran progressive writer and editor. She started out on at Daily Coast and has worked for Planned Parenthood, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. well-versed in these issues, and she watched all of the hearings. Kylie, welcome back to We've Got Issues.
1: Thanks for having me back, Joshua. Always happy to talk to you. Even, when even
0: though it's talk. always unpleasant, right? Like we, yeah. we always talk about unpleasant things. It's not our fault, you know, it's not our fault No (laughs) Now, um, Kylie, news junkies, people like us, we're pretty focused on this week's Supreme Court proceedings But um, I always try to keep in mind that some of our listeners are juggling jobs and kids and, you know, whatever And aren't always on on Twitter watching these things So before we dig in, I just want to set this up with a, a brief kind of like overview of where we are um, so stay, bear with me for one second. Uh, the Supreme court with three Trump appointees and a six, three conservative majority heard arguments in the second of two abortion cases in kind of rapid secession. Um, they will, I think issue rulings. I think it's expected in like June, right? So the first case was this crack potty law in Texas that would have been basically all abortions. That law tried to get around existing Supreme Court precedent by saying that if anyone in Texas gets an abortion or facilitates an abortion after five weeks of pregnancy, when most people don't even know they're pregnant, anyone can sue those people. So it wouldn't be the state enforcing the law. And we talked about that um, case with Imani Gandhi a few weeks back. So listeners can check out the details of that in the archives. So then this week, came Mississippi's ban on all abortions after 15 weeks of of pregnancy. And I think most savvy observers, correct me if I'm wrong, believe that the conservative majority is likely to rule against the Texas law because, again, it's kind of a crackpotty law. And if Texas can let anyone sue to get around your right to an abortion, then like California... Should be able to do the same with your right to bear arms, and so it's a, it's something that they're probably going to reject, and then they're going to overturn Roe with this case. So, is that what you expect to see happen?
1: Um, yeah, very much so. Uh, I think that even before the oral arguments yesterday at the Supreme Court about the Mississippi fifteen-week ban, you know, everybody who's been paying any attention at all to abortion rights in this country for you know more than a day. Uh, expected that the conservative Supreme Court would overturn Roe v. Wade because that's what they were sent there to do. That's why conservatives have been grooming uh, people for the Supreme Court who will do exactly that. You know, that's their mission. So we expected, even before yesterday, that that's what, what was likely to happen. And then listening to the arguments yesterday it became even more clear that the conservative justices on the Supreme Court are, you know, downright giddy about this opportunity that they finally have. They weren't pretending otherwise. They, you know, Justice Roberts made some effort to try to look like he was looking for some sort of a compromise in all of this, which is total nonsense. Abortion rights are already incredibly compromised. And... The rest of the justices, I mean, they all are going to uh, get rid of abortion rights, whether they explicitly say we are, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade, or they use other words that have the same effect. That's clearly what's going to happen. I just, I just don't think there's anybody who listened to yesterday's argument at the Supreme Court and found even a second of hope in any
2: of it.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and I, I want to dig into John Roberts. And I think Kavanaugh also tried to come off as reasonable, but. Um, <laughs> well, he's
1: very bad at that. So He's terrible
0: at that. Yeah, no, I mean, Matt Damon doing Kavanaugh on Saturday Night Live sounds more reasonable than Kavanaugh. Um, but before I get to that, would you like to offer any words of opprobrium for the pundits who said that those of us who warned that this was going to be the, the outcome, um, were hysterical. Like there was that whole thing where it was like, "Oh no, Amy Coney Barrett, she's not going to overturn Roe." It's, it's a, it's a super precedent.
1: I mean, it's so absurd, and it was always absurd for anybody to pretend that overturning abortion rights is not the number one priority of the conservative movement in this country, and that has been the case basically since since Roe was decided almost 50 years ago. They have organized around it. They have raised money around it. They have been, you know, grooming their young lawyers to go fight for it and write horrible legislation uh, in the states to chip away at it. The whole reason that Amy Coney Barrett is on the Supreme Court is to do this thing. So, Anybody who has pretended otherwise is just completely full of it. And either they're being cynical or stupid, uh, neither of which is a good answer. But, you know,
0: as I, said, I, I just feel know. like we've been really gaslit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that whole that whole thing was just ga- pure gaslighting. Like, what are you even talking about? And I'll actually differ with you a little bit in that I think that the conservative movement, that is the well-funded elite, you know, college chairs and all of that, Conservative legal movement. I think that they are more concerned with destroying the regulatory state. But what they've done is they've used abortion as an organizing principle, fundraising principle, and they're and they're giving their constituents what they promised them. So I, I think that these people, you know, they're they're gonna send if their wife or girlfriend or mistress <laughs> wants an abortion, they're just gonna send them to New York or some spa in California or something, right? It's not gonna that that's not. That they're not ideologically invested. Again, I'm talking about the donors and all of that, people, the elected officials. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm ranting. <laughs> I'm just totally – I'm ranting. Uh, let, me, let me go back to – the let me get back to the point. So you mentioned that John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, appeared to be looking for a way to uphold Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, which I should point out has no exceptions – no exceptions for cases of incest or rape. Without writing the words down, Roe v. Wade is hereby overturned. And I, I think this is a really important point, and I, and I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. Mm-hmm. First, is it possible to uphold this law without exceptions for incest and rape, banning after 15 weeks, without overturning Roe, whether or not those words are in the ruling? I mean, yeah, you know, whether
1: they say we hereby overturn Roe is really irrelevant at this point. And I think it's important to, you know, as I know, you know, abortion is already very inaccessible in large parts of this country already. Roe v. Wade is the law of the land, and there are plenty of women who cannot get to an abortion even today. So whether Roe v. Wade exists on paper is really not the point. Um, but, you know, the one thing I think like the one barrier that has stopped a lot of states from just banning abortion outright has been this principle that you can't ban abortion before viability. And, you know, which is at 22 to 24 weeks. The Mississippi law says, yeah, we know that and we think that's a stupid law and you should just get rid of it. So you know, if the Supreme Court says, well, Roe v. Wade still stands, but you can ban abortion before viability, like (laughs) it still has the effect regardless of the words that they use. And you know, if that happens, just about the entire South will no longer have legal abortion. Like it it will, almost overnight, it will just be gone. And if you look at any maps that show uh, where the abortion providers are and what the regulations are in that part of the country already, It is very, very highly restricted already. So we are, I mean, understand that even if the Supreme Court said, you know what, we thought about it, we prayed on it, and we decided abortion is still great, and Roe v. Wade is wonderful, and Mississippi can get bent, we're still in really bad shape in this country when it comes to abortion, even if that was the answer. And that is is not going
0: to be the answer. So I want to just make sure everybody understands this. Again, this is a really crucial point viability there there was a point let me i'll take a step back john roberts at one point was like 15 weeks should be enough time to make a choice if you're pro-choice why can't you make a choice within 15 weeks but viability 22 to 24 weeks of pregnancy that that has been a bright line not only in Roe, but it's been upheld in subsequent decisions right that's why it's called a super precedent this idea that viability is the line at which states can then bar people from seeking, you know reproductive health care as they want to. That is the central compromise of Roe v. Wade. That Roe v. Wade is already a compromise in that it vests in the fetus rights after it is viable, right? And if you get rid of that, the answer to John Roberts, Question, why isn't 15 weeks enough time? Is because if you get rid of that bright line of viability and you say, oh, 15 weeks is fine, then the next date can go 12 weeks and then the next date can go seven weeks and then you get out into Texas is five weeks when people don't even know they're pregnant yet. Right. So let me ask you this. And sorry for blathering. I'm, I should let you talk more. I know I should. You're about stuff you, know I am, but... you have some good thoughts here, too. No. <laughs> okay. So let me ask you this. Why is every savvy pro-choice observer worried about the prospect of this conservative majority killing Roe v. Wade effectively, and then the legacy media kind of portraying that act as a compromise or a narrowly tailored decision? Why why is that something that everyone seems to be worried about?
1: Well, <laughs> I mean, I think that the media, <laughs> as as we would have both said and written many times over the years, it's <laughs> not very good at its job. A lot of the time. Yes. And, and I think when it comes to abortion rights, um, it's quite simple. Anybody who wants an abortion should be able to have an abortion. And period. That That's it. That's the end of it. That's not the case in this country. That's not what Roe v. Wade says. And that's not what all of the restrictions say. But that's how it should be. And the fact that that's not how it is means it is already extremely compromised. And if the Supreme Court says that the standards of Roe v. Wade no longer apply, and now you can ban an abortion before viability, uh, those are further restrictions. That's not some great compromise. That's just further taking away the right to an abortion. There's no good news there. And I think that people have some idea that that the choices are that they up, that they uphold the Mississippi ban at 15 weeks, or that they say abortion is now illegal across the country, which is not the issue before the court yet. Right. Um. So to say like, well, if they don't ban it entirely, that's a compromise. I mean, it just doesn't really make sense. Those are not the issues in this particular case. And, you know, they even talked about that yesterday. I think it was Kavanaugh who said, well... You know, if we if we rule and you're not suggesting, you horrible Mississippi, you're not suggesting that we would be banning abortion completely. Oh, no, no, we're not suggesting that, you know, wink, wink, because, of course, that is the ultimate goal. And they've yeah. got plans for that, too. And um, <laughs> if they if they say that you can ban abortion at 15 weeks, then, as you say, you know, the next will be, well, can you ban it at 10 weeks? Can you ban it at six weeks? Can you ban it at zero weeks? Because then you get into. The push by the conservative movement for personhood, which says that an egg is a person just like mm-hmm. you or me and has all of the same rights that you and I both have, not citizenship rights, of course, but all of the other rights in terms of, uh, you know, the, the right to live and exist in liberty and that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, so when people say, well, there might be a compromise, like uh, we're already overly compromised. Yeah, And, and if the Supreme Court says you can, you can ignore the basic standards of Roe v. Wade and invent further restrictions on abortion, that's not a compromise. That's just denying women their basic fundamental constitutional rights.
0: Now, here's something that I, I did not understand at all. So um, we have long heard that Chief Justice John Roberts is an institutionalist. He's concerned about the legitimacy of the court. Which, whatever, right? I mean, they can right. lose his vote now that they have a six-three majority. Anyway, but as we were just saying, it looked during these hearings as if he was trying to figure out a way to thread that needle of rendering Rose central compromise, the viability standard, moot, without like formally overturning it. Right. And it seemed like his conservative colleagues weren't interested, right, at at all in that, just kind of threading the needle. And it struck me, right, that like that would actually be good for the right to have the media say that they had done a narrowly tailored ruling that let Roe stand while killing Roe effectively. You know, to have the like New York Times write that up would be good for them. And they didn't want any part of it. I'm just wondering, like, why you think that they didn't That they didn't want it, that they didn't think, oh, this is an opportunity for us to kill Roe without our movement facing a political price for doing so.
1: Well, I mean, they're on the court for life. They don't really have to care that much about paying a political price. Yeah. Um, But, you know, imagine, (laughs) shuddering, of course, that you're Brett Kavanaugh. You have been raised in the conservative movement basically your whole life. You've been a professional conservative shill. And your entire goal, again, is to overturn Roe v. Wade. That is what you, as a a professional adult, have been raised in and, and working your career toward your whole life. You get to the Supreme Court. All the way to the Supreme Court, where if you have enough votes, if there are enough people like you on the court, you can do it. You can deliver on the promise. You can fulfill the dream. You can be a hero to your movement. You can be a hero to all of your conservative frat bro friends by doing the thing that y'all sat around drinking in college fantasizing about by getting rid of Roe. So I don't think that it's really of great interest to... Brett Kavanaugh to pretend that he's not doing the thing that he totally wants to do. And he wants the like, credit for it too. Let's be honest.
0: Yeah. It's also a great way to stick your thumb in liberals. eye, right. Like that guy hates, he hates us so much. It's just a, it's a great way to say, fuck you to the the leftists who have, you know, who he's so long hated. I, I want to get your uh, take on a couple of other moments that kind of stood out. Um, mm-hmm. At one point, Justice Sotomayor argued that overturning Roe v. Wade would put other uh, like longstanding court precedents in, at risk, stuff like um, precedents protecting LGBTQ rights or uh, contraception. Um, and here I want to play just a little clip of Amy Comey Barrett. Here she is pushing back on that line of argument. As she asks Mississippi solicitor if the court could overrule Roe, in a way that doesn't doesn't imperil other precedents. Let's listen.
3: Um, <laughs> would a decision in your favor call any of the questions uh, any of the cases? Sorry, that Justice Sotomayor is identifying into question.
4: Uh, no, Your Honor. I, I think for a couple reasons. Um, first of all, I think the vast run of those cases, and you, some mentioned from time to time, I think you know, Griswold, Lawrence, Obergefell. These are these are cases that draw clear rules, can't ban contraception, can't ban intimate romantic relationships between consenting adults, can't ban marriage of people of the same sex, clear rules that have engendered uh, strong reliance interests um, and that have not produced negative consequences or all the many other uh, negative stare decisis considerations we pointed out, Your Honor. Also, I'd add, none of them involve um, the purposeful termination of a human life. So those two two features, stare decisis and termination of a human life, Your Honor, puts all of those safely out of reach if the court overrules here.
0: Kylie, what do you make of that argument and why is this exchange important? Why do you think this is important?
1: So, I mean, it would be um, bad lawyering for the Mississippi attorney to say, oh yeah, no, that's totally the plan. We're going to use this one case so that we can get rid of all the other cases we hate too. Like, you can't admit that. But we should not kid ourselves that that is very much the plan. And we know it's the plan because this is something that conservative lawyers talk about. They write about it. They fantasize about it. um, Their friends in right-wing media dream about it. If you can get rid of Roe v. Wade, which has been precedent for almost 50 years and has been tested over and over and over and over again, you know, all of these states that have always passed their, you know, horrible bans and, and, and restrictions and the Supreme Court, even the, the conservative Supreme Court said, well, I mean, but they're still Roe v. Wade. So sorry, hands are tied. If you can get rid of that, why can't you get rid of marriage equality? Right. Why can't you get rid of access to birth control? Why can't you, you know, recriminalize gay sex? So this is very much the the plan that they have, that they've talked about, that they've written about, you know, some of the uh, conservative lawyers in Texas fighting on the Texas bill have have talked very, you know, openly about this is their dream. So I think that, you know, Sotomayor, in asking that question, was like raving, waving the big red flag for, you know, people like us to yeah. say, hey, guys, this is coming. This is what they're going to do. I can't stop it from happening because... The court is now 6-3, but like, this is what we're looking at. It's not going to just end in June when they rule in this case. That's just going to be the beginning of a whole new era of conservative legislation and litigation to pursue the other conservative fantasies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Here's another clip from Amy Cody Barrett that has jumped out at a lot of people, including you, uh, according, judging by your Twitter account. Uh, let's listen. Let's listen in. So petitioner points
3: out that in all fifty states, you can terminate parental rights by relinquishing a child after abortion, and I think the shortest period might have been forty-eight hours, if I'm remembering the data correctly. So it it seems to me, seen in that light, both Roe and Casey emphasize the burdens of parenting, and insofar as you and many of your Amiki focus on the ways in which the forced parenting, forced motherhood would hinder women's access to the workplace and to equal opportunities. It's also focused on the consequences of parenting and the obligations of motherhood that flow from pregnancy. Why don't the safe haven laws take care of that problem? It seems to me that it focuses the burden much more narrowly. There is, without question, an infringement on bodily autonomy, which we have in other contexts like vaccines. Um, However, it doesn't seem to me to follow that pregnancy, and then parenthood are all part of the same burden. And so it seems to me that the choice more focused would be between, say, the ability to get an abortion at 23 weeks, or the state requiring the woman to go 15, 16 weeks more, and then terminate parental rights at the conclusion. Why why didn't you address the safe haven laws, and why don't they matter? I, I think they don't matter for a couple of reasons, Your Honor. First, Um, even if some of those laws are new since Casey, the idea that a woman could place a child up for adoption has, of course, been true since Roe. So it's a consideration that the court already had before it when it decided those cases and adhered to the viability line. But in addition, um, we don't just focus on the burdens of parenting, and neither did Roe and Casey. Instead, pregnancy itself is unique. It imposes unique physical demands and risk on women and, in fact, has impact on all of their lives, on their ability to care for other children, other family members, on their ability to work. Um, and in particular, in Mississippi, those risks are alarmingly high. It's 75 times more dangerous to give birth in Mississippi than it, uh, than it is to have a pre-viability abortion, and those risks are disproportionately threatening the lives of women
0: of color. So uh, it's interesting it's interesting to me that she she literally used the word force because I call them forced birthers right or right. forced child birthers they're, I don't believe that they're pro-life in any way uh, your reaction
1: so when I heard her say this, like my jaw hit the floor um, because the argument that she's making here basically like if you don't want to have a baby, fine, you can give it up for adoption is like straight out of some pro-lifer pamphlet that they hand to women outside of clinics to harass them. It's yeah. it's bumper sticker anti-abortion language. And, you know, they, they always say that, that, you know, there are so many families out there, like, hey, Barrett's family, who are happy to adopt unwanted children and give them loving homes. And so if you don't want to have this baby, if you don't want the burdens of motherhood, fine. You can just you know, drop the kid at a fire station and be done with it and get on with your life and go have a career or whatever it is you want to do. That's what she's saying. This is like a major argument that the anti-abortion movement has used for years. Choose adoption. And it's completely insane. I you know, I tweeted out what she said, and I have had for the last 24 hours, I have had literally hundreds of women tweeting their stories at me about their pregnancies. Many of them wanted pregnancies that went really badly. The very severe health uh, risks that they went through. A lot of women saying, I almost died. Yeah. Um, Because, yeah, you can give that baby up for adoption. But like, what about the nine months of pregnancy and what that can do to you? And the burden of pregnancy, even when you want to have. Also, it can
0: kill you. It can kill you, right? I mean, maternal...
1: Absolutely. I mean, maternal death rates in this country are deplorable um, and, and really embarrassing. And of course, you know... To go off on too much of a of a side note here but conservatives are not actually interested in improving those numbers and providing better maternal health care for the women who do want to have babies so it's like you know what you should have to have that baby go through pregnancy you're on your own there's not going to be any help for you or the medical the red bear
0: social safety net you know yeah. forget
1: it's- taking any leave to deal with your pregnancy or to deal with recovering from your pregnancy God, so respect. full of
0: shit you know all these conservatives this week have been like oh we should do now now that we once we kill roe then we can you know we can invest in childcare and blah 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 it's like dude you can do all those things now right, right. You, don't have, you can you're do gonna, that now you've been fighting those things forever <laughs> and you'll continue and nobody should nobody's dumb enough to believe that you're going to advocate
1: yeah. that it's things. not going to yeah. happen so you know <laughs> in county fair like well you know choose adoption literally from pamphlets and bumper stickers and yeah. you know uh, yeah. protest signs it was just outrageous and for a woman who has been pregnant five times <laughs> she even the the easiest pregnancy is still a lot it's a lot on your body it's a lot on your family yeah. It's a lot right. on your life and so that's still putting a huge burden on women who don't want to be pregnant and yeah. frankly, that should be enough. Why should you be allowed to have an abortion? You yeah. Because you want to. <laughs> because you want to. Because you don't want to have a baby. You don't want to pop it out and then drop it off at the fire station or hand yeah. it off to somebody else like Amy Coney Barrett and her, you know, massively large family. You just also don't also let's is. be
0: let's be clear, like, and this is something that didn't that I think didn't come out as as much as I would have liked to. Is that like this is an assault on other people's religious liberties? The idea that life begins at conception is, is a belief that of some faiths and not other not shit, not shared by other faiths. Right. So like, you know, it's a, and also let me um, make a very quick aside. There was this radio lab episode about the placenta and about just all the crazy shit that goes on in a woman's body when she gets pregnant. And like, it's, you know, it's, it's like it's almost like Alien, honestly. Like it's called Everybody's Got One, and I recommend everybody check it out. It's a great Radiolab episode. Sorry, it's a quick, quick <laughs> aside. Um, all right, one more, one more clip. Here is this one went viral. Um, again, Justice Sotomayor, who's really good at this, by the way. Here she warns that conservatives uh, will destroy the legitimacy of the court. Let's listen in real quick.
2: Now, um, the sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said, we're doing it because we have new justices. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said, we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates? in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. I... I, I don't see how it is possible. It's what Casey talked about when it talked about watershed decisions. Some of them, Brown versus Board of Education, it mentioned, and this one have such an entrenched set of expectations in our society, that this is what the court decided, this is what we will follow, that, the, that we won't be able to survive if people believe that everything, including New York versus Sullivan, um, I could name any other set of rights, including the Second Amendment, by the way, there are many political people who believe the court erred in um, seeing this as a personal right as as opposed to a militia right, if people actually believe that it's all political, how will we survive? How will the court survive?
4: Uh, Justice Sotomayor, I I think the concern about appearing political makes it absolutely imperative that the court reach a decision well-grounded in the Constitution, in text, structure, history, and tradition. And that carefully goes through the decisis factors Casey as we've laid did out,: that. no didn 't went through
2: every one of them, you think it did it wrong that 's your belief
0: now, Kylie, we've heard this a lot from liberals, like you know warning warning the the conservative majority that they will destroy the legitimacy of the court, and I, I get it because they can't actually it's like one of the few levers they have, right right. But I wonder if we step back a little bit, if those of us on the left would be better served over the long run if we stop maintaining the fiction that the courts are neutral arbiters of the law, right? It's clearly a myth or we wouldn't see such vicious battles over judicial appointments. But if you look over the years, I've mentioned this on other shows, like the left tends to criticize specific Supreme Court decisions that they find problematic While the right has long offered that the Supreme Court, when it loses, of course, only when it loses, but when a decision when they don't like a decision, they will critique the entire legitimacy of the court. These unelected jurors, right, robe tyrants, legislating from the bench, blah blah blah. What are the pros and cons of acknowledging that at this point this court should not be viewed as legitimate from our perspective? Well.
1: I mean, I have a pretty hard time viewing this court or viewing the Supreme Court as uh, legitimate, as non political um, ever since Bush v. Gore. Yeah. Like, honestly, I mean, when the Supreme Court said, look, we don't really have any business intervening in this case, but like we're just going to anyway, and we're going to pick a president, and then let's never speak of it again.
0: <laughs> yeah. By the way, this is not a precedent that we'll use in the future until we want to use it in the future. I mean when we're trying to get rid of voting rights.
1: I've been for 20 20 years at this point. Um, And I think when, you know, when the basic rules of how you appoint justices to the Supreme Court have gone out the window because you can literally steal a Supreme Court seat from a president you don't like and then hold on to it until you can give it to a president that you do like, I think that that raises a lot of issues of legitimacy of the Supreme Court Anyway, yeah. So I think in some ways when when liberals are arguing for the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, they're kind of having a fight after the fact. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I, I get that the you know, very few liberals on the Supreme Court today are grasping for any argument that might work to persuade enough justices, enough conservative justices to not do this horrible thing, so yeah. I totally get Sotomayor making that argument and saying, "Look, if if we if we make this blatantly political decision, where something that's been precedent for fifty years, we're gonna say no longer applies because we just don't like it. Because now there are enough conservatives on the Supreme Court to say they don't like it that they have the power to do that. Yeah." That's a terrible look for the Supreme Court, and for you know Justice Roberts, supposedly such an institutionalist, that is something that he should be a little concerned about. Uh, so I get making that argument, but yeah. I think that it's really difficult to look at this court in its current makeup to know that most of the justices on the court were appointed by presidents who were not popularly elected, um, including you know three justices who were you know, put there by, by Donald Trump in a stolen seat. The other one is, you know, a credibly uh, alleged attempted rapist. And the other one is in a seat that under the Republican rules isn't supposed to be there anyway. Like the whole thing is a mess. So again, regardless of how they rule in this case, I mean, I don't, Again, in the fantasy world where the Supreme Court is like, you know what, Justice Sotomayor made some really great points. So we're just going to uphold this <laughs> way and tell Mississippi to get yeah. lost. Like, I don't think that that would be a moment for liberals to be like, "Whew, Supreme Court is still good. Yeah, I, I just don't. I wouldn't read that from a decision like that. I don't I think, think that uh, that's going to matter, but I wouldn't read that at
0: yeah, I think over the long term, and and I did, you know, I, I agree that that was probably Sotomayor's best best gambit at that point. But um, over the long term, I think we need to be doing just as much to question the, the legitimacy of having five unelected justices who are given lifetime positions where they're. Insulated from democratic accountability in a completely fucked up process, right? Where they can just lie about whatever during the confirmation hearings, and it's never a problem. They don't, they they don't have to recuse themselves from cases in which they have conflicts. Let's call it what it is. It's a mess. And I just want to point out that there was a poll, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say the exact numbers, but there was a poll out not too long ago, like a month ago. They said, do you have faith, confidence in the Supreme Court being fair? And it it was like, or following the Constitution, again, I don't have it right in front of me, so I don't know the the wording. But the the point is that what the the poll found was that there is much more confidence in the court, in this very right-wing Supreme Court, among Democrats than among Republicans. That is thanks to years and years and years of every time they lose, they say, you know, the court is fundamentally uh, illegitimate and the, and the reason that i think this is really important is that we need to do something about this court and the democratic party the institutional democratic party they're looking at their constituents and they're saying oh a majority of them think that there's not a problem here right, right? so that takes some pressure off of them to get their shit together and and deal with the courts. So let me ask you one more quick question i've taken much more of your time than i said i would i apologize for that kylie some believe that overturning roe would lead, lead to a, a massive backlash and kind of reconfigure the landscape for the midterms and for 2024 and blah, blah, blah. I am skeptical and I wonder how you see that prospect.
1: Uh, I share your skepticism. I, I know that this is a, an argument, a dumb argument, frankly, that people have made over the years. Some people have even said, you know, it would actually be a good thing if Roe v. Wade were overturned, because that's what it would take to wake people up in this Making country and up. take to the streets and fight back. Right. And I mean, I think yeah. that that's a pretty privileged argument to make. Oh, it would be good if women in this country lost their basic rights and could no longer control their reproduction. Like, yeah. that, that wouldn't be a good thing. That would do incredible harm. It's going to do incredible harm it's already doing incredible harm. I mean, women in Texas no longer have a right to an abortion, essentially. That's already happened. And there were some marches, there were some sternly worded statements from elected Democrats, but (laughs) we didn't exactly see a revolution in the streets. Yeah. Yeah. And Texas, you know, big state, a lot of women. Roe v. Wade does not exist in Texas anymore. And I I don't I don't see a whole lot of outcry there other than from, you know, the women who have been working in the abortion rights movement and covering the abortion rights movement for a long time. We've been saying, guys, there's this thing it's coming. It's coming. If the Republicans win and they take over the Supreme court, this is a thing that's going to happen. And people are like, Oh, calm down little lady, relax. It's okay. They'll never do that. That would never happen. Susan Collins said, you know, Brett Kavanaugh told me he thinks Rose settled law. So I think we're good girls. I mean, It's already happening and I don't see that kind of outcry that people think would happen. So it's, I think that on that day in June when the Supreme court issues its ruling in this case, I think we'll see some speeches. I think we'll see some marches. I think we'll see some sternly worded statements from elected Democrats and some frankly patronizing statements about this is why you need to elect Democrats. And I just don't really think we're going to see a whole lot more than that on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, they're going to talk about how this is what happens when you elect Republicans. And so you have to elect more Republicans and give them the House and the Senate next fall and give them back the White House in 2024 so that they can continue to deliver on their promises to the American people to preserve the sanctity of life and blah, blah, blah. And it's going to work really well for Republicans and it's not going to work so well for Democrats.
0: That's my favorite I'm not sure. I think it'll probably help. I think it will probably help boost uh, turnout and anger among Democrats. But the thing that I keep thinking about is like, this isn't being done in isolation. They're gerrymandering the shit out of the house. They are passing all these voting rights restrictions, uh, voter suppression measures. So, I mean, you have this court that's insulated from uh from democratic accountability and you have increasingly elected officials who are also to a large degree insulated from democratic accountability. And in many cases they're in these, these districts that, you know, they, they worry a Republican worries about primary from the right. And they do not worry about a, uh, a general election with a Democrat. Kylie Joy Gray. Next time we have you on, let's try to find something more, um, uplifting to talk about
1: rainbows maybe rainbows (laughs) Uh,
0: puppies maybe we could have a puppy thing um kylie joy i want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me i really do appreciate it thanks for having me on joshua always enjoy it (laughs) folks follow kylie on twitter it's at kylie joy k-a-i-l-i-j-o-y you will not regret doing so stay tuned we are going to take a quick break and then come back with amy Freed. Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland, and I'm pleased to be joined now by Amy Freed. Professor Freed is a political scientist at the University of Maine, and she is the co-author, along with Douglas Harris, of a new book. It's titled At War with Government, How Conservatives Conservatives Weaponize Distrust from Goldwater to Trump. Amy Freed, welcome to We've Got Issues.
5: Great to be here, Joshua.
0: Um, So in the aftermath of World War II, the U.S. had a couple of decades, maybe less, uh, that are often referred to as an era of liberal consensus. Uh, that is almost certainly an overstatement to a degree, but it is it is true that there was kind of broad trust in government at the time. You know, s- surveys found that people expected the government to do the right thing, um, and there's lots of explanations for that. Uh, a common one is that it is explained in large part by kind of shared experience among uh, a big swath of the American population in building a massive industrial machine and defeating fascism on multiple continents. But here we are, 70 years later, um, with like a quarter of the population believing like whack-a-doodle deep state conspiracy theories and uh, railing against our government mandating little face masks or asking people to get vaccinated in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, and you know that's not really new. According to again, public opinion surveys, trust in government to do the right thing has been declining for decades. You argue in this book that this incredibly consequential shift is in large part the work of conservative elites intentionally undermining trust in government. Tell us about how you um, you and your colleagues see that.
5: Absolutely. Um, when we started thinking about distrust in government, um, it it seemed like the way political scientists were looking at it was as if it was just kind of an accident or just an inadvertent byproduct from other things. There would be a scandal or some kind of development, you know, changes in the economy, whatever it happened to be, and distrust in government tended to increase. And we said to ourselves, well, it's a political phenomena. Therefore, what's going on politically and we, our initial look at it focused on Newt Gingrich in the Clinton years, but then we went on to expand the project and our argument is that it's a political tool that has been used strategically by conservatives and there's four main things that they want to accomplish with this or or that they use it for. Um, you know, and uh, it, in part, it's to try to build their political organizations and coalitions. It helps to uh, maintain those organizations and, you know, give them a a common bond. It's also obviously part of election campaigns um, and part of policy battles. But then it's also used in discussions about institutions, you know, what should be more powerful, the president, or the Congress say, which is a you know common sort of institutional thing. So the effort is to promote distrust towards institutions that conservatives don't control, um, and and promote trust in ones that they do, in order to try to shift power in that way. That's really the core of it. Um, I mean, little, say a little bit more, you know, there are other aspects of it. But that's really the main thing is it's not a mistake. It's not an accident and it's not a byproduct. You know, OK, other things are going on, but it also has been really employed as a political weapon.
0: You know, I think it's also, um, you know, it's it's also a political weapon in terms of getting people to and I know this has become a political cliche, but to Kind of vote against their own material interests right i mean you know it it is it is true that the federal government is largely financed through progressive taxes and um its social spending all, all kinds of social programs programs benefit a broader swath of the population uh, you know, and it's, it's of course, to make it easy to oppose tax hikes. It makes it easier to oppose environmental regulations, despite the popularity of protecting the environment and whatnot, all of that. I think it's important to point out all of the consequences of this. But let me ask you this. um, You know, since the beginning of the end of the liberal consensus that I talked about in introducing this, we had, you know, the Vietnam War, we had Watergate. You know, kid. We had kids gunned down by National Guardsmen at Kent State. You could look more recently. Um, the the government had multiple warnings about an impending al-Qaeda attack before 9/11. Some of them specified that the group may use commercial aircraft, they they use those attacks or leverage those attacks and some dishonesty about. Saddam Hussein posing a threat to the United States to invade Iraq or to justify invading Iraq. And and as you know, I could go on here for a while. We could talk about, you know, Iran-Contra or uh, COINTELPRO or even the climate crisis. Should we not be skeptical of the government? I mean, it isn't to what degree is distrust justified and to what degree is it is it artificial? And how do you sort those out and how do you sort those two out?
5: Right. I think that's a really great question. And, um, you know, I could add to your list various coups and attack, yeah. you know, all kinds of things where, you know, the, or health in some health issues as well. But, you know, um, and, and absolutely there are times that you at, actually I would say that the, the baseline should be at least skepticism. Yes, you know, skepticism is important. That is a small d democratic virtue. Uh, well-educated citizens looking carefully at what government does, skeptical about things, holding them accountable both on policies, on values, also on how things get implemented. Absolutely, um, you know. So, you know, to be sure, there's plenty of reason to be to be wary of government. Um, what we're talking about is a little bit different because it's taking distrust uh, instead of just saying, okay, here's this example and this is where we have to be careful and change systems if possible, change people in power if possible when we see these these uh, highly negative things that, that happen. Um, and instead just this kind of wholesale degradation, which in these days has turned into... Uh, delegitimizing government. So we've gone from, you know, this healthy skepticism, which we should have, to a certain amount of distrust and weaponization to now this delegitimization. So as you said, you have this group of people, 25%, 27%, whatever it happens to be, who think that, uh, you know, the election was stolen, 2020 election was stolen, that COVID is a total hoax, All this stuff is really an outcome of something that the Republican Party has been doing. And another aspect to it, which, you know, I didn't mention in my initial introduction that we all know about, everyone I'm sure listening to this knows about is the role of race in all of this. So it's when government uh, starts, you know, the federal government turns to be more supportive of civil rights. um, And you have the big shift where the South, is uh, moving towards the Republican Party, that that's really when there's this, you know, ramping up, starting under Goldwater and then moving forward towards distrusting the federal government. Because who is it that the government can be presented as helping? You know, if you're helping people of color, then those sorts of programs are are um, given a, a, a negative, uh, you know, slant from, you know, wh- whether it's welfare queens or Whatever, whatever else. So that's part of the story, too. I mean, the high point of trust in the Pew poll is uh, on basically the eve of the 1964 election, which also happens to be the last time that um, a Democratic presidential candidate won the white vote. Um, you know, because there's been these 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 underlying, you know, shifts in the party coalitions due to, you know, reactions to the civil rights movement. And, um, you know, so the Voting Rights Act gets passed and the Civil Rights Act get passed in that time.
0: Yeah, 64 and 65. Yeah. Um, and uh, John Sides has been on the show, uh, just c- continuing with this theme a little bit. He's been on this show a few times and he shared some research that found that to a very large degree, Trump's uh, narrow electoral college victory was a result of white backlash to the election of Barack Barack Obama. And he he actually had this questionnaire he asked people before and after the elections. And he found that these uh, proverbial Obama to Trump voters, the one thing that they had a much greater awareness of than they did in 20. 2008 and 2012. By 2016, they had a much greater awareness that the Democratic Party is the party that supports aid to African-American families. So like this consciousness of this difference between the party increased significantly with the election of Barack Obama.
5: Absolutely. Yeah, there's a great deal of research about how attitudes about race are are, bas- are really associated with like everything. <laughs> in these times um, yeah well you know. there's
0: also attitudes about gender <laughs> oh, that's true
5: too that's absolutely i mean that's that's another wrapped, wrapped all
0: together yeah it's an you know, ugly, ugly stew yeah. i mean the
5: 1980 election you know that the, the republican party had supported the equal rights amendment in their platform for decades and they take that out they become anti-choice Um, And that's because Reagan is bringing in evangelicals into their coalition. Um, And of course, the, the sort of bizarro part maybe of it in terms of you're talking about trust in government is they're totally happy to have an extremely strong national government or, you know, or state, you know, whoever, whatever level of government to restrict people's freedoms when it comes to reproductive rights or to police sexualities or, you know, but but, um, you know, so it's not like they're anti-government in some policies. Yeah, but- no, they're,
0: they're anti-government, they're anti-progressive government, which kind of is a segue into uh, something else that I wanted to ask about, which is related to all of this. Um, you know, people have people will tell you, and I think surveys are pretty clear about this, that they have a distrust in government as a general concept. But then when you ask them specifically, oh, what do you think about, you know, food inspections or the EPA or environmental protections or firefighting, all the things that government does, they have a positive view of that, right? Should we do a better job of differentiating between different areas of government more than we tend to do? Like I'm, you know, as we were talking about reasons that you should be skeptical, I'm more wary of the, the national security state than I am of other parts of the government. Just for example, um, you know, and I think that people, a lot of people who express distrust of government don't think about the parts that they like. Like every spring, <laughs> this is something that I, I always think about. The government let's loose millions of tiny trout in the streams up where I live for people to catch in the summer. And I don't think anybody thinks about that when they're like railing about government. Your thoughts?
5: I think that's absolutely true. You know, there's this uh, idea that it's almost subterranean, a lot of things that government does. If things work well, then you just don't notice them. You know, they're right. out there and and people may not even recognize who did it, how it came about, um, and, yeah, we've known, meaning political scientists have known since, like, you know, some studies and even around 1970s, which is a long time ago now, talking about, you know, over 50 years, that there's this disjuncture this, this between how people think of government generally, uh, whether it's regulation, taxation, you know, programs, and then how they think about specific things. They like the specifics a whole lot more. Uh, Than they like government in general. And I think that it's pretty clear. That's why, you know, when you see Republican rhetoric that is about socialism or big government or Marxism, most of the time, it's not about Marxism, of course, or socialism, really. Right. But But, you know, they use those terms over and over and over again, because that fits into people's overall perspective that they don't like, quote, big government. Uh, but then, you know, we then we see all these other polls like recently from Data for Progress, other organizations that show that people like the specifics, you know, in, in a lot of these things. And, I, you know, I, I think back to when Social Security was introduced and, um, you know, of course, it was a time when people liked government doing more, but growing out of, you know, New Deal policy. You know, it's a New Deal policy. People (laughs) were suffering greatly during the Depression that, you know, they wanted government to do things. But still, there were many, many very specific focused kinds of campaign efforts that the federal government did to educate people about that, you know, with posters and radio and, you know, it's pre-TV, so they didn't do that. But, you know, whatever ways were possible to let people know, here's this new policy, this is how it's gonna help you. And to do it in non-bureaucratic ways, you can go online and find, you know, posters of it uh, from, this, from this campaign. Um, and I think something dropped uh, as a, res- you know, that hasn't, that hasn't been happening. Plus a lot of times we design, we, the d- policies have gotten designed in these ways that are really, really clunky and hard to navigate. And that is just annoying. I mean, nobody likes that to deal with the red tape and, and all of that. So to simplify things, make things easier to access, uh, would help and also to promote the specific policies that, that people like and that are helpful for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a real crisis in communications, I think, right now from, yeah, Democrats across the board, the Biden administration, they're doing a very poor job of Uh, educating the public about what these policies that are nonetheless poll well, like the, um, you know, universal pre-K, et cetera, et cetera. Um, A lot of people don't know that that stuff is in the Build Back Better Act, for example. Uh, And we've seen this throughout. You know, there's polls that show that most Americans don't know that they got stimulus checks, et cetera, et cetera. Let me ask you this. Um, What is the submerged state that Suzanne Mettler, I think, was the one who first... um, I think she was the first one to use that that term, the submerged state. What is that and how does that play into all of this?
5: Yeah, the submerged state, and this is Mettler's uh concept, uh, is is that basically that people don't recognize things as being from government or some sort of government program. So if they if you ask people like she did, you know, are you benefiting are you getting, you know, help from any government programs people or how many people will either say that, you know, most people say that either they're not getting any help or they just totally understate how many, when then, you know, that they do. Cause she also follows up and asks about a lot of specific things. So for example, um, I mean this, this one, uh, a lot of people don't think of as really, you know, a housing program, you know, we usually think of housing. I think most people think of housing programs as, you know, some kind
0: of section eight for poor people,
5: section eight or housing projects, but really the thing that most money for individual's housing support is, is in, is in, um, you know,
0: home mortgage deduction,
5: home mortgage deductions. Exactly. Which we're yeah. of course having our arguments about now who should get that and all of that sort of thing. But that is actually a, a, a huge one or, uh, you know, guaranteed student loans. Um, you know, just a lot of different things that even, even sometimes things like, um, Medicare, or Medicaid, but, you know, people, some people don't think of those as, as government, you know, Keep um, keep the
0: government out of my Medicare.
5: Absolutely. So (laughs) it's it's just, you know, and, and I, I think that, um, you know, on the one hand you can understand that people, you know, we're all very busy people these days, I think, um, you're doing all these different things, but still, I think there, there just has not been the kind of public awareness efforts um, that there could be. And actually, I think some of this could be done potentially much more on the ground in organizing efforts. Um, and, uh, you know, like there have been some really, really interesting and uh, kinds of things that people have done over the years where they've really have these very long, engaged conversations with people at their doors that um, that that get them to think about things in a different way. One of the things I talk about in the well, I talk about a few of those. We talk about a few of those in the book and the chapter on which is the, what can we be, what can we do now? You know, what is to yes. be done now chapter, <clears throat> yeah. which, you know, which I really wanted to make sure that uh, we had a strong chapter there on that, because it's, you could just get so depressed, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. these things that are going on, but there are things that people can do, but, but in case, but in any case, these uh, really engaged kinds of, conversations, uh, in, in Maine where I live, it, we, there was a marriage equality campaign in 2012 where people were going door to door more than a year before the election and talking to people about, uh, gay and lesbian people in their lives and ha- or they themselves, you know, were gay men and lesbians, whatever, you know, and just, and talking about, the importance of marriage, why marriage, you know, as a form of love, showing love and commitment. And they did move a lot of people, Uh, not everyone, obviously, but they were able to move people along a spectrum to make either to get people who were somewhat negative, at least neutral, neutral to positive, and even some positive people to more positive and more supportive. And those people then got engaged in the campaign often, um, and talk to other people. So sort of really kept kept it going. Um, and there's some efforts to do this around the issue of choice, have people do these kinds of engagement conversations. Some unions have tried some of these things. I mean, these things have to get tested and assessed and evaluated to see what works and how well they work. But really right. to, um, you know, do more of this when it does work, I, I think is uh, is a good idea, you know, because... We, too much of campaigning is this last minute, call people up, get out the vote sort of thing. Um, and that just does not do that much, um, pe- you know. And and so so I think talking to people about, you know, specific things that have been helpful in their lives and help them make those connections, because it's, it's not something that is going to just happen naturally. And it may be in the past that it would have happened more with when we had more, um, you know, large scale trade unions and, and such or different. And a shared, a shared
0: media, a shared media also when everybody watched, you know, the, the CBS News at 6pm and there wasn't bifurcated media where half the population watching OAN and Newsmax and half the population watching real, real press.
5: Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, mm. I, I, I know of, you know, specific. Even, you know, campaigns with candidates who, even if they were in uh, an area that was relatively conservative, by putting in the time and the energy to have well-organized campaign that's doing all this field work over a long period of time, it, it really ma- made it, you know, makes a difference.
0: Yeah, um, I think Georgia is a very good example of this. I mean, that is a, a, an example where sustained engagement rather than just this, you know, campaign cycle engagement has really changed the nature of that state.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. And really, you know, working with people in Georgia to do it so that outside people who are involved, you know, people from outside of Georgia are, are more uh supporting those people in various
0: ways. That, yeah, no, uh, you know super important. Rather than parachuting in and uh, trying to, to get people to see things the way that you do. Amy Freight, I believe we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really do appreciate it.
5: It's my, my pleasure. Take care.
0: Folks, the book is called At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponize Distrust from Goldwater to Trump. I would also like to thank Kylie Joy Gray and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I would like to thank the good folks at Alternet and Raw Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall, H-O-L. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I would like to thank all of you discerning people for tuning in. Have a terrific week.
6: Oh, Cecilia, I'm down on my knees. Begging you, please, won't you come on home? Come on home. Making love in the afternoon with Cecilia up in my bedroom. I got up to wash my face. When I come back to bed Somebody's taking my place Oh, Cecilia You're breaking my heart You're shaking my confidence daily Oh, Cecilia I'm down on my knees I'm begging you please do not you come on home? Come on home